This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am a narrator. Voice the guides the blind, following up with your ears to your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. Today, we're going to hear a talk by Jaron Lanier a computer scientist, and one of the original Silicon Valley startup geniuses. But Jaron Lanier is not your usual tech whiz. In this brilliant talk, Jaron Lanier talks about the shortcomings of computer science, artificial intelligence, and social media, and how this new technology is making us more and more stupid and making artificial intelligence seem smart. This talk is titled, Who is Civilization For? We say, who is civilization for? And I think most people would immediately have an answer. I think most people would say it should benefit human beings it should sustain the human project. It should benefit the overall uh, biosphere, the ecosystem of the Earth, so that this all continues. That's probably who civilization is for. But it's never quite that simple. When I was much younger, I came up with a, an image to help me think about who the beneficiary is of our activities, whether we're engineers or writers or anything else. And I call this the circle of empathy. By the way, the term empathy had its origins in 
a circle of psychologists and poets in Germany about a century ago. And the original use of the term was essentially imagining what virtual reality would be like someday. In the original use of the term, there was an example given that somebody might be able to imagine themselves as a leaf or as a mountain, and that as people could exercise their imagination to become different parts of reality, that that would also help them appreciate each other and develop a sympathy for one another's different positions. It was a very charming idea, but this notion of radical transformation of self, this very charming word came from essentially an attempt to imagine what virtual reality would be like someday. And we've always had this idea in virtual reality that maybe if you can imagine yourself in a different position, whether very radical, imagining yourself as a leaf blowing or something, this would help you dislodge yourself from only seeing the world from your perspective all the time. And this might help you become more sympathetic to the situation of others. So the circle of empathy this image that I mentioned is the circle around you and anything inside the circle deserves your empathy. Things outside the circle perhaps don't deserve your antagonism, perhaps they don't deserve destruction, but on the other hand, they're not the beneficiaries of what you do. So. I would hope that all decent people believe that human beings should be inside the circle. That's not always the case. There are racists and homophobes and many other varieties of ideological people who would like to put some human beings outside of the circle. But I think decent people can agree that humans belong inside. There are some cases that are very difficult to decide. There are controversies about animals. Should animals be inside the circle or on the outside or somewhere right on the edge? In the United States, we have tremendous debates about uh, abortion, about whether an early fetus should instantly be on the inside or not. Typically, liberals wish to make the circle larger and conservatives wish to make the circle smaller. It's a good definition of those two attitudes. There are problems with making the circle either too large or too small. If you make the circle too small, of course, the problem is you become cruel. In fact, you eventually make it small enough that you even destroy yourself. And this we've seen again and again when conservatism spirals out of control in history, something I don't even need to refer to in this location. If you try to make the circle too big, there are also problems. If you say, I will never even kill a bacteria because I wish to support all life, then you can't live because your body kills bacteria all the time. You essentially become incompetent. And so there's a sort of a zone in which the circle is plausible. Now, I'm telling you about the circle of empathy for a very simple reason which is that the project of technology, which has existed for centuries, has recently become, I would say, dominated by an idea that we should put machines inside the circle. And this is the idea of artificial intelligence. Now, when I say it's become dominated, 
I don't think I'm exaggerating. If you talk to most of the people in most of the big tech companies, I'm one of them, but I probably have a minority position on this idea. Most of them will say, we are in an AI race. China announces itself as being in the AI race. The United States certainly announces itself as being in the AI race. Everybody does. It's become this strange myth of competition where everybody is trying to be the inventor and owner and controller and beneficiary of this new life form that we will create. Now, what I wish to propose is that putting a computer inside the circle of empathy, which is essentially the idea of artificial intelligence, is fundamentally an incompetent idea. It's very much like trying to not kill bacteria, which would force you to never brush your teeth and essentially die. You know, you can't do it. And in the same way, to treat computers as being alive ultimately is an absurd task that is not what it initially seems to be. And I, I wish to describe my reasons for saying that and some of the reasons that I think there are much better approaches to getting the advantages of new mathematical and engineering techniques that are usually described as AI. But we can get those benefits without the myth-making, without the storytelling, without the theology of AI. Now, I call it a theology because within the tech world, artificial intelligence has become very much like a religion. Specifically, it's taken on a quality that is similar to a medieval religion. The adherents are extremely influential. If you're not familiar with this culture, you might think I'm exaggerating, but for instance, Ray Kurzweil, who's the chief engineer of Google, says things that are more extreme <laughs> than what I'm about to say all the time. And so in the new theology, it goes like this. We are building these intelligent machines they are improving faster than we can, so they will at some point surpass us, just like a jet plane would surpass a race car. And when they surpass us, they will be the most intelligent machines. They will be the dominant life form. It's a religious project. This new, faster machine will inherit the project of life from us. It will take over as the major life form on the planet. Those who are close to the machine at that time might have their brains uploaded and achieve the experience of immortal life within the new giant artificial intelligence. Until then, the first duty of everybody is to share all their data because the data is what will make up the new artificial intelligence. And this is a fascinating point because you might think, why? Are companies like Google and Facebook so greedy for all this data? Can it really possibly make them more money from their advertising to follow your expressions and all these things? Can it really, really do that? And the answer is not really, a little bit. But the, the deep driver is actually this religion. Google says it's only being an advertising company temporarily and it's trying to win the AI race, and that's what it's doing with the data. And when I say Google says, I mean the founders and the people who control Google, like Larry Page, say this very literally. So this is not an inference or a clever restatement. This is simply a report of the literal 
statement as it is made. So this obviously does bear many similarities to medieval religions. The true believer can get immortality. The non-believer is consigned to death. There'll be an apocalyptic event that ends everything we know. This is called the singularity when the machines take over. And we're supposed to like that because the machines will be better. They'll be smarter. That is approximately the theology. Now, I would like to examine why I think this is a terrible way of thinking from a number of perspectives. The first one should be obvious because it suggests that people will either all be killed or at the very best be made obsolete. And this is surely a ridiculous way of conceiving of a project that should be about serving humanity, the project being technology. We've inverted our goals where technology is the beneficiary instead of a tool to serve the original population. So this is a tremendously tragic example of the circle of empathy being expanded in an incompetent way, where in order to expand it to include computers, we're actually kicking people out because we're saying that they will not be the beneficiaries after the singularity. But I want to dig a little deeper into the details of this. And I want to use a very specific example that I often find is the easiest way to get across how I see this. The example I'm going to use is translation between languages, such as between German and English. The idea of translating between human languages was one of the first dreams of computer science, even as early as the 1950s. The most important mentor for me was named Marvin Minsky. And Marvin Minsky, as you might know, was the person who probably did more than any other person to promote the idea of artificial intelligence, to promote the mythology of it. And I'll get back to that a little bit later, but Marvin loved to argue. So the fact that we disagreed about this from when I was a kid was wonderful. I would tell Marvin, this whole AI thing is just horrible. Why are we doing it? And he would say, it'll be effective for getting our grants, so shut up and just play along. <laughs> and in fact, it was true. It was very good for getting grants. Back in the early days, in the 70s was when I started at this, you would go to a grant-making organization such as the Defense Department, you say, we're gonna build this super smart thing and if we don't do it, our enemies might and it'll get smarter than people. And it's, okay, here's your money, here's your money. Oh my God, you better. And so it was very effective. And it, it actually, the whole thing started off as, as storytelling to get grants. And I, I'm not saying this as a scholar, but as a direct participant, this is where it started. But at any rate, about language translators. One day, Marvin had the idea that maybe computers were good enough that a couple of graduate students could achieve translation between languages over the course of a summer. So he assigned it as a summer project. And the idea was simple. You would start with Noam Chomsky's idea of a core, a logical core of language, and then you would have the dictionary for the two languages, and you would combine these two things together with an algorithm, and then you should have a translator. It was a reasonable hypothesis, and it absolutely failed. And people tried and tried and tried to do more and more sophisticated versions of that approach for decades, until in the 1990s, some researchers at IBM's lab had a totally different idea. They were saying, you know, trying to write a program that understands language is hopeless because we use language, but we don't understand language. Nobody has a scientific description of how language works. What we'll do instead 
is we'll use big data. And this was one of the first examples of big data becoming important in this type of application. We'll get a very, very large amount of text that has been translated, and then we'll look for correlations of phrase to phrase, phrase to phrase, and we'll create a mashup of that, and that worked. All of a sudden, there were usable translations coming out. And that is still the core of the technique that we all use today. Now, since that time, free translation services have become available. So as we all know, we can go online and from Google or Microsoft or others, we can enter some text and we'll get a memo translated or a web page. It's wonderful. I think this is a fantastic service. It's convenient. I enjoy it. I benefit from it. However, there's something very strange going on because with these services coming online, the career prospects for people who translate professionally have changed. And to get into how they've changed properly requires a bit of a technical discussion. It used to be that there were 10 times more people who could look to a career in translation and their success formed a bell curve where most of them fell in the middle. Once again, it's a little technical. And what happens after something's been regimented under a computer system is it changes to a much smaller number of people and it looks like what we call a zip curve where there are few people who can benefit from it, but most don't. At any rate, on average what's happened, although there's some people who've done very well, on the whole, there's about a tenth the level of a career prospect for somebody who does translation for a living because they can't get a job doing those little memos anymore for a business which used to be a lot of the work. Now, this follows exactly the pattern of other tasks that used to be paid that have been turned free. It's what's happened with recording musicians. It's what's happened with photographers. It's what has happened crucially with investigative journalists. And so you might say, well, that's very sad, but this is just the old story of progress. When a new technology comes along, it makes some skills obsolete. You might say that, except you'd be wrong. In this case, the reason you're wrong is something that's not widely realized. Every single day, the language changes. Every single day, we need new example phrases. For instance, there's news. We suddenly have to talk about yellow jackets in France, and that has to be translated correctly. If it's translated literally, it will turn into nonsense. We have to talk about new pop culture, new jokes, new songs, new memes, all of these things. And where do we get the example phrases? We steal them. We go around to people who do not understand that we're taking the translations, and we simply take them. They have all clicked through on their little agreement that lets us do it, and we steal them by the tens of millions every single day. We have, the algorithms have found people who are doing translation for one reason or another. For instance, sometimes it's amateurs who like to do subtitles on the most recent YouTube videos for their language, that sort of thing. So here we have a very screwy, bizarre situation. We're telling the people, you're obsolete because a giant electronic brain is better than you and has replaced you, but we still need you. We're going to steal from you. <laughs> so can you see something wrong with that? There's a sense in which AI can be understood as a new way of packaging data 
and other efforts, creative efforts between people rather than as a thing in itself. Now, if any AI, and this is a principle that generalizes, if each supposed AI program is different, not all of them need new data every day, but they all ultimately come from people. And so in order to treat the AI as alive, you have to somehow hide all those people. You have to tell those people, get behind the curtain like I did before when I wasn't sure if I should be on stage. You have to pretend that they aren't there. You have to tell the people, you're not needed anymore. Maybe you'll survive on basic income or something. But the funny thing is that the AIs are always owned by somebody. The AI is owned by Google or maybe Microsoft or somebody. So essentially AI, when I hear AI, I hear the word theft. To paraphrase Lenin, AI is theft. It's a form of pretending that people didn't contribute when in fact it was crucially about what people contributed. So from a political and economic perspective, it's a disaster. In the past, every time a new technology emerged, we would say this is creative destruction. And if some old jobs have gone away because the skills are different now, that's okay because there'll be new jobs. But there can only be new jobs if we accept the idea that the people who do those jobs should be paid. If we say, well, there are new jobs, the new people are needed. However, we're going to pretend they're not there. We're going to pretend we're not stealing from them and we're not going to pay them. Then, of course, that system breaks down and instead you create unemployment as the technology advances, which is a disaster. It means that technology hurts people instead of helps people. So going back to our question, who is technology for? If we say it's in part for machines, and when we say artificial intelligence, we're suggesting that the machine itself is becoming the beneficiary, that there's an intrinsic value in making the machine have a certain status. If we say that, we also in the same breath are removing people from having that same status. So it's a remarkably unethical and destructive idea. Now having said that, I want to make very clear that the thing I'm criticizing involves storytelling, myth-making, it involves vocabulary, it involves ethics, it involves economics, but I am not criticizing computer code, I am not criticizing the design of robots, I'm not designing something fundamentally mathematical or in the realm of engineering. I actually happen to love that stuff. The people who do AI and call it AI think I do AI. For instance, my friends and I sold Google their first machine vision company. I do that stuff, but to me, it's just code. To me, there's no reason to add this new layer of myth-making that gives it a kind of a supernatural status as this new life form that we're creating. In fact, there's every reason not to. Let me give you one more approach to this idea. As you probably know, one of the earliest expressions of the idea of AI was from Alan Turing, the principal inventor of the computer, and this is called the Turing test. When I was in school, when I was young, we were taught the Turing test as if it were one of Einstein's thought experiments, as this foundational core idea in modernity, and we weren't taught anything 
about the biographical context in which Turing thought of it. We knew very little about it, actually. We, it was just an abstraction. More recently, more and more people are aware a little bit of Turing's biography. There was a major movie about it. It's become part of the public discourse. At the time, nobody knew. So for those of you who don't know, Turing proposed the idea of the Turing test in the last weeks of his life. He'd had an extraordinary, extraordinary life. As the principal inventor of the computer, he had been drawn into the war effort and plausibly was responsible for saving Britain from an invasion. And what he did with the, one of the earliest computers was he broke a Nazi secret code, which was called the Enigma Code. You all probably know this history, but just in case, the Enigma Code was decoded with a little box, and the mathematicians in the Nazi intelligence services believed it to be unbreakable, but they weren't aware that there was a computer on the other side, and the computer could break it. So after the war, Turing was initially celebrated as one of the great heroes of Britain. However, it happened that he was gay. And at that time, it was illegal to be a homosexual in Britain. And he, along with about 50,000 others who had participated in the war effort, were treated as, uh, not exactly as criminals, but sort of as mental patients. So he was forced to accept a treatment, a quack, bizarre, unscientific, and cruel treatment that was supposed to cure his homosexuality. He was forced to accept massive doses of female hormones with the idea that that would balance his sexuality. And here we see the extraordinary power of the metaphors we choose to use to understand our own technologies. Before the computer became the dominant metaphor, the steam engine had been the dominant metaphor. And during Turing's lifetime, the computer was known to only a few individuals, so the steam engine was still the powerful metaphor. And with steam engines, it's all about balancing pressures, and therefore the popular version of Freudian psychology had to do with balancing these pressures. So the idea was that, wow, his sexuality must be out of balance, so we're going to balance it with the opposite hormone, and somehow that will get the engine to not be giving off steam and, and, and all that. It's something like that, something crazy, something stupid. So he uh, developed female bodily characteristics, and he committed suicide in an extraordinary way by eating an apple laced with cyanide next to the first computer in his lab. Do you all know this story? Yeah, some of you do. So um, it was just in the, the last weeks before his death that he wrote down the Turing test. And once you understand the context, I don't think it's possible to read it in the same way. So the usual way that the Turing test is told is we're told that Turing modified a, an older parlor game in which a, a judge was supposed to determine whether little t slips of text that are transmitted under a screen were coming from a man or a woman. He'd have to guess who was the man, who was the woman. They both might be trying to deceive the judge. And I don't know why this was considered an entertaining game. I, th I find it, it sounds kind of boring to me, I don't get it, but anyway, apparently Victorians thought that this was incredibly amusing. And so Turing said, well, get rid of the woman and let's have a person and a computer, and if the judge can't distinguish them, what distinction is there? 
Okay, now this is a very interesting intellectual move. It's a very interesting one because it doesn't say anything about the absolute status of anybody. All it says is if you think people are elevated in some way and you can't distinguish the person from the machine, who are you to discriminate against the machine? So it essentially puts the machine into the role of the homosexual or the Jew or some other oppressed class. It takes the machine into the circle of empathy and complains, why does this thing not have status? Why does it not have rights? However, however, and, and that's the attitude that the tech world has had ever since. Technical young men will often whine, why isn't my machine treated as a real person? You know, my machine's smarter than your dog. I don't know. I run into this all the time in the lab with brilliant young men. So the thing is, Turing was being tortured to death for his identity. And I think the way we should read this should be informed by the context. I think it was in part a very dark cry of pain. It was saying, what more could I have done for Britain? What more could I have done for the cause of civilization? What more could I have done for the cause of democracy than what I did? And yet I'm still being killed for who I am. And I think there's an indictment built into it. There's an indictment that, you know, if you can't treat me as a person, I guess maybe you'll treat a computer as a person. It's bringing up the whole absurdity of the lack of empathy shown towards him. I think that that's the better interpretation given the context. I think what he's saying is that if you have so little humanity, I bet you can't tell a computer from a person. And in fact, if you look in the footnotes, he only wrote two versions of it, one in a little note and another is, as part of a little article. And if you look in the footnotes, he has a comment, surely you can see that ultimately the computer came from people and people came from God, and whatever you see in the computer is ultimately just part of the divinity you see in people. He has this amazing footnote, which nobody ever reports on. Okay, so I want to say something else about the Turing test, which is a little bit of a joke, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but here's what I wish to point out. In the Turing test, as it's usually presented, there's a judge who's attempting to distinguish a person from a computer only getting little notes, little tweets, you might say, little, little, little messages. Now, the assumption of the technically-minded nerd is that if the judge can't distinguish which is the computer and which is the person, it must mean that the computer has become elevated and has become like a person. But there's another logical possibility, which is that the person has gone down. The person might have made themselves debased. The person might have made themselves stupid. And that is why you cannot distinguish them from the computer. It's another logical possibility. There's nothing in the Turing test that tells us which happened. Furthermore, the judge might have become stupid. Okay, so you start with two people in one computer. Either the computer might become elevated or the people might become stupid. But because they're two people, I would argue that there's a two-thirds chance that a person became stupid rather than a machine became smart. So in general, any time the Turing test seems to be passed, it probably means that people have gotten stupid. Now, you might say, well, this is just a theoretical exercise, but you would be wrong. This is actually possibly the most important technological interaction going on now because it's creating an existential threat to our species and our civilization. Now, here's what I refer to. I'm referring to fake people that create 
fake social perception that destroy human character, destroy the politics of region, and ultimately destroy the ability of mankind to act in any collective way that's rational. So let me unpack those things. Humans have a characteristic that we share with many other species that we perceive socially. And what I mean by that is that the way people around you are directing their attention and the attitude they have to the world forms a collective perception net that all of all people present are aware of. We're always helping each other watch for dangers. We're always helping each other be aware of opportunities. In one of my books, I tell the story of when I was a boy, I and some friends would play this trick where we would go out into a crowd and start pointing at something when there's nothing there and soon everybody was looking there. That is social perception. So in the online world right now, the rate at which fake accounts are added to platforms like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, or accounts on uh, YouTube, Google accounts, the rate of fake people is rising faster than the ability of the companies to purge the fake people. So we have an unknown but large portion of fake people. And the fake people, there's a whole economy. You can buy bulks of fake people if you want to suddenly buy a followers so that you look popular. You can buy the service of creating many fake people to have a political idea. You can do all of this. Now, because of my concerns about AI, I started writing about the danger of this very early, and I even have an essay from the early 90s about the possibility of fake people, who in those days we called agents, and today they'd be called bots, but about the possibility of them swaying elections through false social perception and how they might go into battle with each other. And I wasn't the only one. I think other, there were other people also writing about this danger. All of our warnings were useless, obviously, because it's exactly what's happened. So when fake people are created and they throw an election, what's happening is that the Turing test has been won by people getting stupid. Can you see that it's the same as in my analysis of the old thought experiment? Essentially what we've proven is that we're willing to become stupid in order to make the machines seem intelligent, in order to let them influence us. But ultimately, and this must be remembered, there is no weird alien or angel or supernatural force that's creating computer programs. It's all from people. And so therefore, if there is an AI that's making people stupid, that AI is being run by somebody. And whoever that somebody is, is seeking their own agenda, which is typically money or power, or occasionally just a kind of nihilism, but usually it's money or power, or it's maybe an ego thrill. Whatever the motivation, whenever people are made stupid by believing in AI, there's somebody unrevealed, somebody behind the curtain, who's the beneficiary, who's the puppet master. These days, we tend to think of that person as being Vladimir Putin because he's been caught doing it so much. And there's such extremely well-done documentation of him having done it in some specific cases, such as in the U.S. election, in the Brexit vote, and so on. I'm certain that there are actually many people who do it. It's very inexpensive to do. It's easy to do. In fact, <laughs> there was this experiment we did at Microsoft that I interpret perhaps in a different way than the experimenters. We, we made a little chatbot, 
and the idea is that it would talk to a large number of people, millions of people at once, and use their phrases with each other through pattern matching to create the illusion that it was a friend you could talk to. So there were all these people talking to each other without realizing it. They all thought that they were talking to an AI. It was called Tay. And within 24 hours, it turned into a Nazi. It became this horrible, racist, evil thing. It had to be shut down. And so the question is, why? And there are two popular explanations for this. One of them is that there was just a group of kids who were being vandals and kept on feeding it ugly things. But I have a different interpretation, and it's very hard to show which one is more correct. I think we created a Putin detector. I think what happened is our bot started interacting with other bots that were malicious and they had a corrupting effect. So in other words, we made ourselves stupid to believe in this stupid bot. And maybe the right thing is just not to even believe in bots in the first place. Now, a key idea is that any core capability that you can offer using the artificial intelligence framework can also be offered in a different way in which the person perceives themselves correctly as being in control and perceives the value that they receive correctly as having come from other human beings. For instance, right now, Google somewhat pressures you to just let it choose videos for you, video after video after video. The way it chooses videos is in part based on similarity of interest to what you've selected, but it's also in part driven to get you engaged. And unfortunately, the most engaging material is that material which excites the fight or flight responses within people, such as fear and anger. And so, as has been repeatedly documented by researchers, if you do let the Google video search go on, there's a debate about whether it's a majority or a large minority of cases, but it doesn't really matter. If you just let it choose for you, it eventually will go into some kind of weird, malicious, paranoia-inducing, anxiety-inducing zone of videos that seem to have come from malicious sources. And this is not because anybody at YouTube wants to hurt the world. It's simply the natural outcome of this whole methodology. This is what will happen. The alternative is very simple which is to say, we will not automatically choose videos for you. You will search for videos and click on them. I mean, the difference is so slight. It's so slight. And there already are some options where you can collect on a collection of videos or something. I mean, there's ways to avoid this, but there's like the artificial intelligence religion makes engineers just loathe, loathe giving people control because they want everybody to buy in to this AI religion. They want people to say, yes, the machine is choosing for me. I trust the machine. The machine is becoming alive. They want that so much that they'll destroy the world to get that feeling. So this is something I battle against all the time. I battle against this constantly. And it's difficult. I can attempt to theorize why this holds so much sway in the technical community. Why is tech culture so obsessed with this idea of creating fake people and of believing that it's creating a new life form? One theory is that it's mostly men and it's some sort of a womb envy kind of a thing that we want to give life. It's a way of not needing women anymore. We can propagate life without them, without their difference from us without their whatever is imagined. 
The vast majority of people who think this way are men, and the vast majority of influential people in tech society are men, and that is a real factor. It's a very peculiar feeling. That's part of it. Part of it is it's an effective plot for science fiction, and so much compelling science fiction has been made out of the idea of computers coming alive. We could mention the Matrix movies and the Terminator movies and on and on and on. That's had a, a big, big role. And if you look at these movies and you think, wow, science fiction does kind of say something about the future of technology, then what you think to yourself is AI is power in the future. So we better be the ones to make AI first and it better be our AI. Once again, this sense of the race, this all or nothing race where nothing else matters. Within the tech community, you'll often hear, and by the tech community, I mean the very most powerful, wealthy, and influential individuals, my friends <laughs> in many cases, you'll often hear an argument like, well, it's fine for you to worry about global warming. It's fine for you to worry about whether there'll be enough fresh water when we hit peak population later in the century. It's fine for you to worry about the danger of emerging new infectious diseases as populations travel around the world. You can worry about all that stuff, but it doesn't really matter. The only thing that really matters is the AI race, because the AI will be smart enough to solve all those things. So everything else is a waste of time. It's the singular focus on this fetish object. You can say it's a little bit like the golden calf in the Old Testament, of a sort of a flowering of vanity of people believing that they can be God which is, an, I think, a natural thing to want. It's difficult to be a person. We die, mortality is very difficult, and this gives you a fantasy of some other status, some other story. That's a very big part of it. Another part of it is what I call nerd imperialism. <laughs> and what that means is that the nerd mentality, the nerd mindset would like to subsume all the other ones. So all the people who are interested in art or design, all the people who are interested in sociology, the people who are interested in politics, the people who are interested in psychology, the people who live subjectively and are interested in the impressions of the world, the people who believe in interiority and are interested in their own experience. The nerd imperialist would like to overwhelm and control and be superior to all of these. And it's kind of happened because we make so much money. You know, the biggest companies are tech companies now, and they've come up very quickly. We're outpacing even the pharmaceuticals. We're kind of kings in a way. And so when somebody has that kind of good fortune, they always read it as confirmation of their high self-regard. And so naturally we think, yes, this whole business of replacing people with something we invent, of course it makes sense, and people are paying us to do it because, of course, it is the right thing. But ultimately, the deepest reason that I think we should reframe the mathematics and the engineering that's normally bundled kind of arbitrarily as being the thing that is AI, the reason I think we should reframe that instead as simply technology that people use instead of a life form is a spiritual reason. I find that each moment is remarkable. I am absolutely astonished that I'm experiencing this. I'm absolutely astonished that I'm not a machine. There's this extra thing where I am 
alive inside this body. I am perceiving, this is, can be called consciousness, it can be called experience, it can be called sentience. Whatever you call it, the AI people will say, oh no, that's something we can do with the program. They'll subsume it, so no vocabulary is adequate to describe it, which is maybe appropriate. But this amazing sense that there's something manifestly supernatural in every moment of ordinary life, this thing to me is sacred and absolutely remarkable. It makes me a better scientist. It makes me a better technologist because it reminds me that I don't understand everything. It reminds me that I live only on a little speck of understanding in a sea of mystery. It reminds me of how precious and mysterious other people are, even though I can only go by faith that they are also experiencing. It reminds me of how life is magical, how much gratitude I have to be here. And the loss of that, the loss of that to this AI fantasy of power and greed and ideological empiricism is such a horrible idea. It's such a loss. I think that one of the, there are many things going on in the world. Social media is exciting these emotions through fake people and it's making politics horrible everywhere. There's been this incredible concentration of wealth and power, much of it for the people who are closest to the big computers in one way or another. There are many things going on that are destabilizing and harming the world, but I think one of them is this looming sense of people becoming obsolete. I was recently giving a talk to high school students in the US and I heard questions I've never heard before. I heard questions of the form, well, if we're gonna be obsolete, why did our parents have us? What is the point? I've never heard that from a young person before. I've heard young people who are scared or angry. I've heard all kinds of things. I've heard young people who think adults are full of crap. All of those things, but I've never heard that. And I think this sense that the technologists are about to make people obsolete is having a deleterious effect on the world along with all the other things. I think it's part of the reason why we see such a rise in fundamentalist religions of all kinds everywhere. Whether we're talking about India, the Islamic world, Israel, the United States with fundamental Christianity, all over the world you see the rise of these things and I think it's in reaction to this idea of like, wow, people are about to be obsolete. And it's those other nerds over there who are owning the new God, not us. That's a horrible feeling. It's based on a lie. It's a lie we shouldn't be telling. That is my talk for now. <laughs>So for someone who spent their entire career in computers, you seem to have come to a place where you're very focused on humans and the societal structures we have. So I'll ask you a more philosophical question, which is what do you think the, the meaning of life is or the, the purpose of humanity? Mm. I hope you won't see this as evading your question, but as answering it. But I, I kind of often find myself stuck between two groups of people and I find myself disagreeing with both of them and so I'm kind of in the middle and it's a tough place to be. One group are my sort of technical nerdy friends who think that religious people are full of it, there's no such thing as consciousness, it's just some effect of computation and that 
this whole level of spiritualizing things is just the source of a bunch of superstition and manipulation and trouble and we should just give it up. It's just it's just a flaw of weak minds. And then there are the religious people who think that, you know, we've fallen into these times of distress over a lack of faith and a lack of belief and that we're turning ourselves into robots and all that. And I actually have sort of partial sympathy with each side, but the way I used to put it when I was younger still kind of works for me, that you have to walk this tightrope where if you fall to the left, you become superstitious, and if you fall to the right, you become a reductionist. So there's this like tightrope, and on the tightrope, you recognize that internal experience exists, that consciousness is, is actually something, and that it's kind of hard to fit in with empirical science because it's not something that we know empirically. We can't make a meter for it, and we don't really know what it is. I, I've never seen any convincing... I mean, there are interesting things to be said, and there are interesting speculations, but ultimately, it's mysterious. And in order to be a realist... You have to be able to accept the degree of ignorance that you possess. You can't be a realist by pretending you know everything. That is not realistic. And that's where people get mixed up. What they say is, no, I'm scientific, I'm rational, and, you know, we already basically know everything. We don't know all the details, but we know that math runs the universe. We know that the basic physical theories, we know that it's all molecules, we know it's all computation. We can learn and invent details, but we basically know it. And if you think you know that, that much, you're not being rational. You have to accept a limitation to yourself in order to be honest and in order to be rational. You have to be able to see ignorance to be a scientist, for otherwise how could you even identify unknowns? You have to accept that you're ignorant in order to be a good engineer, otherwise how could you recognize that there might be solutions yet to be discovered? And so I don't have a good word for this middle path, this, this tightrope. It's like a rationalist, spiritualist or something like that. A rat spirit. I don't know. But it's this in-between thing. And so from that perspective, we have to say that we're not privileged in our position to know a lot about ultimate questions. We don't know what death is. We don't know what's going on with this overall reality that we're in. We don't know if it's even possible to speak of such things. We are free to have different ideas about it, however. So for instance... Let's suppose that somebody perceives a sense of grace in reality, which is to say that it's not quite entirely random, but somehow there's a sensibility or an aesthetic to the universe or something. And th this is a kind of interesting thing in, in nature. You can do evolutionary storytelling. You can say, well, this butterfly is beautiful because it's signaling or whatever. But the thing is, there's always kind of a little more extravagance than really would be needed to meet the criteria of any of those theories. There's like nature's just a little bit more extravagant than it needs to be. And, and that's something similar to this idea of grace. And I don't think it makes you into an irrational boob to notice such a thing. And I think that that is actually not too far from the thing that religious people perceive, if it might have slightly different language or slightly different storytelling behind it. So I, I think there's some kind of consilience of all these things that's kind of in the middle and probably pleases no one. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Oh, sure.
That was Jaron Lanier. He's a computer scientist and one of the early Silicon Valley startup whizzes. And he's the author of The New Dawn of Everything. Coming up in a few minutes, an interview I did with Radha Agrawal, author of Belong, Find Your People, Create Community, and Live a More Connected Life. listening to the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Rada Agrawal is a community architect and the co-founder of Daybreaker, a morning dance event that is happening in over 25 cities around the world. And she's the author of Belong, Find Your People, Create Community, and Live a more connected life. First off, I just love your book. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to read, and I love your spirit and the energy and the attitude that you bring to the way you, you relate to things and, and what you do and this work. And I'm wondering how you became so passionate about this experience of belonging and finding our place in the world 
and community building and where it began for you? Yeah, so the story really begins personally when I turned 30 and I looked myself in the mirror and I realized I didn't belong. And I, you know, here I am in my 20s going to sports bars, you know, watching sports. I didn't really care about drinking beer. I didn't want to drink, hanging out with people who didn't fill me up. And that was a sort of moment of realization of, wait, this is not the life that I want for myself. At 30 years old, that was the beginning of this journey. And then over the course of several years, I really focused particularly on my personal community, which changed my life. And then I started creating community for a living. So Daybreaker really inspired the pages of this book in the sense that um, for the last five years, I've, I've built this community called Daybreaker. It's an early morning dance community that meets in, in 25 cities around the world. And the idea is to create a safe space for people of all age or shapes and sizes to come and dance before going to work without substance, without alcohol, and, and watching the way people are transformed, watching the way that they were able to find community in an authentic way made me realize, and all the conversations that I've heard over the last five years, people coming up to me, hundreds of letters have been written, um, I realized that there's such a void, such a need for sort of a, a, a toolkit, a guidebook on, on how to make friends, how to do this thing. And I was one of those people. And so that was the beginning of this journey of wanting to write this book so that everybody could have the tools, a very simple how-to guide on how the heck do I start this friend thing. And the thing is that we go through like seven or eight inflection points in our lives. Like when we go to college for the first time, we move away from home, when we move to a new city, start a new job, or when we get married and have a kid and now we're a new parent all of a sudden, or when we get divorced, when we retire, when we move to another city, right? There's so many moments in, in life where you're starting all over again. And each time you're sort of looking at yourself in the mirror and you're like, oh man, I got to do this, this whole friend thing again. And each time it seems to get harder and harder because we tell ourselves that, I'm too old, I can't make new friends, I'm, you know, so-and-so, I'm, I've gained too much weight, whatever. We, we, we tell ourselves stories, and the goal is, hey, we're all humans, here's very simple tips, tools, and tricks, and all the secrets that we've used to create our own community um, that you can now use in your own life to find your dream community, and it starts with yourself. It starts with you. Now, you have a twin sister. Yes. And I'm curious to hear how you got along with her and I get the impression from reading your book and I've I watched a couple of short online videos of the two of you and it sounds like the two of you had a sense of community together. Absolutely. And I'm wondering how you managed to lose or not translate that out into the world around you you know, earlier in your life and why it took so long for you to realize that you had to do that in a more intentional way. Yeah, I mean, I think when you have a twin, you know, you it's in some ways a crutch, right? You've always been laughing at your joke. It's, it's kind of like when, you know, my mom and my dad are so many married couples, they just have each other. And you, it's just the two of them. And you can still feel lonely when you have another one more person next to you all the time. There's so many friends that I know who are married and they're just like, wow, I didn't realize how lonely I was. I gave everything to him or her and 
I realized the importance of having outside community. So, yeah, I mean, of course, having a twin sister is having a soulmate. She is my best friend. She's my soulmate. But you always need sort of a community is actually three or more people. And it's actually very, very important to be able to have perspective from the outside. Otherwise, think about it when you're, you know, when, when you're having a fight with your best friend or having a fight with your, your, your life partner, if you don't get the perspective from outside community members who know both of you, it's really hard to recover. And that's why divorce rates are so high. You know, we, we give everything to our significant other. The whole society, our culture has been placed on romance and finding love. And really the point of why I wrote this book is actually it starts with friends first. The more friends that you focus and, and, and are intentional in cultivating, the more friendships you're in, intentional cultivating, the, the more you're radiating the most authentic version of yourself, which means it'll attract the partner that you're meant to be attracted to instead of, you know, sort of some settling in, in so many ways. And and I think so much of what I've seen over you know, my, my entire career of community building is you know, when people focus on romance before they focus on friendships, that's where we can get into a bit of a pickle. So yeah, so in many ways, having a twin sister is like being married, right? You, you need the outside perspective. You need outside community, too. So we live a couple blocks from each other now. I'm pregnant. She just had a baby a year ago. So we're on this journey of life so closely together. Um, it's so vital and critical to have community outside of that, too. So a big part of this is really learning about ourselves, understanding who we are and what our values are and what's what's most important to us and unfortunately in our society it seems that we're kind of led in the opposite directions absolutely we are so focused on <laughs> on social media our brains are being reprogrammed by social media right so what we're doing now is going after the rush of likes and followers and really what app developers, phone developers are realizing is that, oh, wow, wait a minute, we can turn the phone into a slot machine. As soon as you hear the ding, right, all of a sudden your brain, the dopamine rush of someone wanting to contact you or notify you with something and you get out of your personal conversation you're having with someone in front of you and now you're into your phone. And so the more and more addicted we get to our phones, the more and more we're addicted to the dopamine rush of the ding that these developers are realizing are sort of kryptonite, right? The more we are moving away from our personal relationships and into our phones and the more isolated we get. And here's a crazy stat for you. One in four Americans have zero friends to confide in and this number has tripled in the last 30 years. So we are more lonely and isolated than ever before. Mm-hmm. Yes. And statistics also show that we're the most or at least one of the most unhappy nations in the world. Yeah, because we're focusing on ourselves. You know, humans are happiest in service of others. We are happiest when we're bringing food to our friend, our neighborhood. We're happiest when we're baking cookies for our friends. We're happiest when we're bringing presents to our friends for birthday parties. But look what's changed, right? We don't know our neighbors' names anymore. We don't know the the name of the barista down the street. We don't know the names of our colleagues sitting across from us at the office. I mean, it's wild what's happening right now and we're just focusing on ourselves and the more we focus on ourselves the more we spike depression and anxiety and that's an epidemic in this country we are depressed because 
we're taking selfies more and more instead of baking cookies and bringing them to our neighbors. So I always tell my friends when they're saying, Rada, I'm not feeling good, I'm feeling depressed. I'm like, I always tell them, go and bring food to someone or go and, and volunteer somewhere and go and go and really offer yourself to the community and you'll see how that's going to turn around immediately. And I think that is the biggest issue right now. You know, another crazy stat for you, only 10% of Americans have given one hour of community service. And it's, it's wild that we, we aren't even serving our communities anymore. And so we are unhappy because of it. So the more our phones take us away from serving others, the more unhappy we are. So it's a really interesting thing because we think that the more we focus on ourselves, the happier we'll be. But actually, it's, it's the opposite. You write, as a community architect, understanding and curating energy is my most valuable skill. And you have a whole chapter on energy. What do you mean by curating energy? And what is the importance of energy and what you're referring to and being aware of and being intentional with energy? Absolutely. So... And think about it, right? When you hang out with your friend, you immediately know if they're bringing you up or bringing you down. Energy is this invisible life force that we have around us, and yet we're not paying attention to it. We're focusing on our eyes, looking at our phones, and our ears on our phones as well. But really, our most potent, our most powerful sort of sense is our ability to read energy. And that is the cornerstone of belonging is if we can find our community, if we can actually sit down and assess, hey, Tonio, who am I spending my time with? You know, am I spending my time with people who are energetically positive or energetically negative? And that's really where you start with writing down sort of who you're surrounding yourself with right now is energetically, do they bring me up or bring me down? So when I turned 30 and I realized that in my 20s I hung out with people who just talk about each other all the time, I realized that they were not serving me. I was turning into a negative person myself and you know that was really telling. So when I wrote down, wow, these are the five people I spend most of my time with, oh my goodness, energetically they're not positive. And so that's a really wonderful place to start. Right, who am I surrounding myself with? And then secondly, of course, and more, even more importantly, is how am I showing up energetically? And when I walk into a room, am I talking to other people? Am I the first person to complain? Am I the first person to, instead, on the other side of it, you know, bring music to the space or bring cookies that I baked or that, or did I bring, you know, sort of gold stars and paper crowns to my friends in their party, right? So, you know, how are you showing up as a person? Are you muted? Are you calling yourself names? Are you saying that you're a socially anxious person? Are you calling yourself, you know, I'm this, I'm that. And I, I'm watching my friends who are naturally positive and extroverted and willing to be generous with their energy now calling themselves introverted and, and other things without realizing that they don't even know what these terms mean, you know? And so, you know, I can be both introverted and extroverted. I get energy from being by myself and I get energy from being around other people, but it all depends. Like, of course I'll be depleted and not feel energetically positive if I'm hanging out with people who are bringing me down. So I'll start calling myself introverted because I get more energy being alone. So we're sort of using these labels in ways that aren't always serving us, you know? So it's like we're responding to the world around us and you have this practice of refreshing or resetting 
our own energy states, our own energy yes. levels. Could you yeah, talk? Yeah, so the practices, you know, so we have at any moment, any moment in time, we get to say, oh, wait, Rod, I, I've been negative just now, or I'm really sort of going in this dark hole here. I can refresh and reset my energy at any moment as soon as I notice and become aware that that's what I'm doing. So I like to use a doorway, actually. It's one of my favorite tricks. I do this every morning when I go to my daybreaker office. Before I walk into the door and I open the door to the office, I say to myself, Rada, how am I going to lead my team? Am I going to lead the team with a negative energy or with positive energy? Am I going to show up and inspire the team? Or am I going to bark orders and be sort of a fearful leader? And so it's this wonderful kind of threshold, right? A doorway gets to be your little trick that whenever I go through this door, I get to decide, am I going to be positive or negative? Am I going to be energetically joyful, energetically depleting when I walk through this door? And that's been an amazing, very simple physical trick for me. Also, when I'm having a tough conversation, so let's say you and I had a tough conversation, I get to say, okay, let me just take a walk here. So I'll walk out the door to the room. I'll take a walk around the block, maybe get some tea, and then come back into the space with a new perspective, a new reset, refreshed and energy that I can have a more thoughtful conversation with you. So sometimes if you're feeling like you're going to a negative place with your partner in your home or with your colleague at work, just take a moment to say, hey, let me just go reset and refresh. And I'll be right back. And let's have a, a more level-headed, empathetic conversation after that. Yeah. Now, all of this really requires that we have a more comprehensive and deeper understanding of ourselves and who we are. That's a, that is actually the key to belonging. People think that belonging is actually sort of belonging to others, but step one is belonging to yourself. So the first half of my book is sort of a journey of self-exploration to get to know yourself through kind of what I call gentle self-awareness. Sometimes when we go through sort of the self-help practice and process, it's a very harsh process and it's really hard to shine a light on your blind spots, right? And so the idea for the book is, hey, let's, let me hold you by the hand and let me just kind of walk you through sort of who you are inside of yourself. Let's get to know, let's get cozy with ourselves and say, ah, cool, this is what happened to me in my 20s, which is why I'm acting a certain way now. Or, wow, I was in this toxic relationship, which is why I'm acting this way now. Or, you know, oh, wow, I was in this loving family growing up, but then I sort of moved away and my college experience is really traumatic. So there's so many moments where we're steering the wrong direction and the beginning of my book is really meant to hold you by the hand and say, hey, let's just walk through, you know, where you've been, how you've been showing up, who you've been throwing yourself with, so that when we're actually ready to go out, you're super aware of where you've been, where you come from, and then also what you value today. Like, and, and by the way, it's going to change. Like, this book is going to be your best friend for all of your life, every inflection point. Like, we go through seven or eight inflection points throughout our lives, right? We go through when I go to college for the first time, when I get married. There's so many moments in life where we're starting all over again. So this point of this book is that they can, it could be a trusty guide for every new moment in your life when you're having to start all over again. But it starts again with you, and at every moment in your life, you might be a different person, too. Yeah, this is such a wise book. I mean, I'm so impressed with this book. And... I'm just Thank wondering, you so much. I'm just wondering how you learned all this so quickly. I mean, you're still quite young. 
Thank you. Um, you know, honestly, it's it's actually by building communities for a living, by community architecting. It's, I'm learning from everyone around me. You know, my Daybreaker community is my biggest teacher. Every two weeks, I get to go to our events in New York. And, of course, we're in 23 cities around the world. But, we, you know, we're doing 25 events every single month. And you know, to be able to actually get real-time feedback every single time from community members sharing their heartfelt stories of, I was suicidal and I came to Daybreaker and now I found my tribe. You know, I came out to my family because I came to Daybreaker and realized that I can be fully myself. And I'm hearing all these stories of people who are just crying out to be heard, seen, and held. And they don't know where to start. And... You know, it, since I've learned all these tools, all and I've had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with both citizens and other community builders. I have all this knowledge that I wanted to share, both from my own personal life and from having done the work. And so the whole idea was to um, to put it on paper and, and share it with as many people as possible. Because I really do believe, Tonio, if every single human felt a sense of belonging, if we all felt that <sighs> I'm home, that exhale of home, we would not have gun violence. We would not have any of the anxiety and depression, the opioid epidemic, everything that we're facing today ladders down to our sense of belonging. If we don't belong, we go in this direction. If we do belong, we go in this direction. And so it's super black and white in so many ways. I totally agree. I would love for you to describe the experience of Daybreaker and what a, a typical Daybreaker session would be like. Absolutely, yeah. It's a three-hour experience. It's on a weekday morning. So imagine waking up on a Wednesday morning before going to work at 6 a.m., putting on glitter and an animal onesie. And it doesn't matter how old you are. We've had Jane Goodall at Daybreaker down to a little baby on their parents' shoulders. So it's all ages, shapes, sizes, colors, sexual orientations, everything. Dressing up in costume before going to work and just dancing and being free for three hours in a space in a container that we've very thoughtfully created and curated where you feel totally included so every single person instead of a bouncer at the door we replaced it with a hugging committee so everyone gets a hug at the door if you want one of course and you know the entire experience is we removed the alcohol we replaced it with green juice coffee and tea we have all kinds of horns and instruments and performers and artists and break dancers like regaling you with eye candy to really kickstart your day with energy and tension. So you're dancing for two hours, giving so much of your love and energy on the dance floor. And then, you know, at the last 15 minutes, we have a secret concert. We do an intention reading as a community and you're off to work with a giant smile on your face and a little glitter in your hair. And the idea is that, you know, we are usually in bed sleeping in the morning and why can't we start our day as a community together dancing and connecting and sweating and by the way we are all dancers i've heard now from thousands of people i'm not a dancer i'm not a dancer but they come at daybreak and they're like oh wait i am a dancer i can dance i've just been telling myself stories again that i'm i can't or i'm not and you know we are all dancers we are all connectors we have just been sort of programmed by society to say i'm not i'm not and and have you been ridiculed or made fun of so the whole idea is to create a safe space for you to really self-express again so it's a three-hour experience 6 a.m to 9 a.m a one-hour yoga to our dance party and then you're off to work what a, a wonderful wonderful way to start every day it really is. And, you know, if you're any listeners out there, if you're any, any anywhere near our cities, you can find one of our cities at daybreaker.com, and you can just sign up for our secret, not-so-secret emails. We don't do any advertising or marketing. It's all really word of mouth. 
just like this. We share with our community. They share with each other. Oh, there's this really cool thing. And you sign up for our email list. And then we start getting our invitations by email. And, yeah, the whole idea is, is that we get to be together before going to work. And to end, you write, belonging is a dance between the me and the we. And when we do that, magic happens. And the world needs more belonging, more love, more community. And we are needed to wholeheartedly participate in receiving and sharing our energy with others. Let's reconnect to our purpose as humans, which is to simply share and receive energy. Even money is just energy so share that generously too and isn't money so 2008 i love all of this i mean i've been living this way myself and years ago when i was living in san diego we used to have a weekly dance jam which was at night but it was basically set up along the same principles no alcohol no drugs and we were a community and we we loved each other and we would hug each other and and we would just get together and do that that. just to connect and to play and experience joy together so i know the value of what you're talking about and to do this every day and to begin your day with this just sounds completely amazing Uh, well thank you and it just it really again it takes all of us to recognize the importance of of this for it to really work, which is why I'm on this mission with this book and and this tour. I'm traveling to 30 cities to share this this conversation. I mean, if we can all generously create community within our communities, then we're really doing our job as citizens. Yeah. Well, again, I love this book. It's wonderful. I wish I had had this book when I was younger. (laughs) And um... (laughs) Me too, boy. (laughs) Me too. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me. This is wonderful, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And good luck spreading the word, because I really do feel like you are one of those people who really, really are in a wonderful position to genuinely change the world with what you're doing. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. That really means so much. And, again, it takes a village to do it together, but if I can just be a voice in the conversation, I'm doing my part. And that was Radha Agrawal. She's a community architect and the co-founder of Daybreaker, a morning dance thing that has been happening in over 25 cities around the world. And she just wrote this wonderful new book, Belong, Find Your People, Create Community, and Live a More Connected Life.
about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week